Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Conservation, a laid-back podcast where we discuss everything from cool animals, conservation, the environment, and what we can do to help. I'm Robert Pike, a field journalist for the Global Conservation Force, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Veal, a world-renowned rhino conservationist and president of the Global Conservation Force. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Conservation. My name is Robert Pike. I am joined by my co-host, Mike Beal. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Wesley Fisher from the Netherlands. He is the instructor and CEO of the Scent Imprint Conservation Dogs, as well as a GCF field instructor for the Global Conservation Force. Wesley, I thank you for, for joining us. Uh, just so I know you and Mike are really good friends, but if you could maybe just help me and then also our listeners, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into conservation. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, I really appreciate it that you invite me, of course, for this uh, for this podcast. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh, I'm uh, Wesley Fisher. I'm from the Netherlands. I work uh, with working dogs like for 17 years uh, in operational uh, yeah, operational backgrounds. Uh, first, start my career as an explosive and narcotic dog handler, and then um, yeah, I work every single airport security, seaport security with, with sniffer dogs. Um, and then after a couple of years, I start my own company. And then uh, one of our respectful friends um, from Mike and I, um, yeah, he called me, he say, listen, we have a problem. Um, they hide the ivory. Can you train dogs to detect ivory? And in the meantime, the same dogs need to search for explosive because they place the ivory buried under the ground and they place booby traps uh, on it. So it was like a serious uh, question mm-hmm. and then everything starts. And after that, yeah, a lot of other projects pop up because of that. Oh, wow. So yeah, it's, it kind of uh, kind of just blossomed into something like this. It's uh, It's been a cool ride, huh? It's been an interesting road on how things came together. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, we follow each other for a long time uh, online, of course. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, everything like starts from passion, especially um, yeah with the working dogs over here. I'm here yeah, seven days in a week, busy with the dogs. Uh, yeah, raise puppies uh, to become, that they become like an operational working dog. I select all the dogs. And then uh, especially, I always say, it's really nice that my dogs found a lot of narcotics on the streets. But the first time one of my dogs found like uh, a little uh, baby monkey is uh, with two other brothers, uh, really in a small box uh, in the port of Indonesia. That makes you yeah, really emotional. And then I was like, whoa, this I, uh, I will do everything in my power. Um, yeah, to help uh, with this, yeah, this war. And uh, what's for me really frustrated is that I work with uh, customs uh, and narcotics, explosive, where everything is money and budget, but not uh, for conservation side. So that's why I say to Mike, if you ever need me, just give me a call. (laughs) Because, uh, yeah, it's really frustrated that that nobody's doing the thing on uh, like a government level by giving units money for to do this, uh, to use sniffer dogs, for example, or train the rangers. So yeah, that's yeah. Everything starts from that. 
Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, it's been a, it's been a couple years. Gosh, now it's been several years now that I'm thinking about it. Um, we were starting to plan canines and programs, I think as early as 2018 or 19, when we were first starting to talk about it and we were looking at location sites, the different breeds that we want to utilize, uh, where those breeds came from. Um, and you know, when you're working with working dogs, you can't just necessarily go grab any dog and, um, apply them to the scene or the, you know, the task at hand. So, um, in the case of Wesley and our programs, um, Wesley's got good contacts who offer him first choice of the litter from these really respectable lines. And, um, that's how Thor and Clive came into the picture. Um, Thor and Clive are both trained by Wesley and both work in conservation applications for, uh, scent and tracking um so yeah and not just in that realm um so wesley has worked as a field instructor for gcf on multiple occasions and the way um our advanced field instructors work essentially is if you're a content expert like wesley and you can handle the environment and all the different things that come with teaching in the field which is pretty complex um you're in the cadre of instructors for gcf so Wesley has gone to Odzala Kakua National Park, which is in the Republic of Congo for us. And that was just uh, a little over a year ago. Um, And then also, like I said, brought in Thor to the picture, did the field training for Thor and the handover for the the creation of the GCF Mignani unit uh, for canines. And pretty soon is going to be going towards uh, Bangladesh with um, the first conservation canine in the country, which will be Clive working on pangolin conservation and endangered turtle species conservation. Cool. Now, Leslie, is there a a breed of dog that is better suited to be like a a sniffer dog or a a detection dog? Yeah, of course. Um, If you look, uh, we need to think about, if you ask me the question, my first thing is like, where are we going to work operational? So the first thing is like, okay, you say, for example, oh, we go to, uh, to a national park or we go to a seaport and an airport. But I ask also, which country are we going to, to deploy? Are we going to Africa or are we going to Asia? Because a lot of, like, for example, uh, and especially in America, like shepherds are like really badass and they really look good on pictures. Mm-hmm. But I always say those dogs have a drive inside of them that... A ranger with a limited, with no experience in working dogs, cannot handle that one easy. For example, and 100%. I like, and I like to to go. For example, I work uh, also in Asia, and I chose little hunting dogs. For example, like cocker spaniels, mm-hmm. they are like search machines, and they are breeds uh, like uh, soft in the mouth. So that means if you want to grab the toy, they release the toy. So. That is the first conflict, conflict what you have. A lot of rangers in that countries are afraid of dogs. So if a shepherd holds a toy and you do like, yeah. then game over. <laughs> they are afraid of the dogs. Mm-hmm. I love shepherds if you have funding enough to train those rangers really good. And of course, a shepherd can do more things. He can do tracking. He can do biting. He can do detection. 
But then in the meantime, you need to have a lot of budget available to train those rangers on the right way. Otherwise, it can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. So I, I love the especially the hunting hunting dogs, and not only the Cocker Spaniels, also like a good pointer because they are yeah friendly and not everybody is afraid of them. And uh, they are not so smart as, as a shepherd. So I work with so many shepherds in operational settings that uh, if you do the basic training, everything goes fine. And you see an instructor, everything is like motivated. But when a park, when a, when a ranger is alone and he's like at front of the gate and he do he, he sniff a car and then he needs to wait for another car, then they know, hey, no instructor is here or no colleague is here. Oh, this car is, is boring. There's nothing there. Mm. And a cocker spaniel or a pointer, he, every time he believes <laughs> that there's something in the car. And yeah, <laughs> it's like magic. Uh, especially if you yeah, if you talk about those rangers, because yeah, with the shepherds, you need to do a lot of interval reward system. And yeah, yeah, it has more uh, skill uh, set from the handler. Uh, for, for example, like tracking, yeah, you see it with Tor. Yeah, they are so, they are breeds. For trekking, so I raised them from eight weeks old. I train them for trekking, trekking, trekking. Yeah, and later I can give them to my son from two years old, and he work out the trek, for example. Mm-hmm. And they are so easy to reach. So yeah, I really look at the, on the operational side, but also the experience from the from the rangers. And if they have no experience, okay. Can we set up like a really good program with a lot of training? Otherwise, it can be yeah sometimes dangerous. So of course they're good shepherds. So don't understand me wrong, but yeah, that's a conflict what I see in more countries, uh, especially if they do like two weeks training and they left for a year and they come back. And uh, yeah, another topic, uh, really important one, what I've seen is that a shepherd, um, like if you raise a puppy, everybody thinks the first year you need to do environmental training. So environmental training is the most important one from a working dog because the dog can have drive, but if he cannot handle um, that you're standing in front uh, of a gate or like uh, next to a village and you need to do some roadblocks and in Africa or Asia, it can be really hectic around. And if that dog is afraid, he cannot search. So what you see, even when sometimes when I send the dog out and they are isolated in a park and they see nobody there, they don't have a car to go out. And of course they do the job, but it's always in the same setting. You see also those shepherds are going faster in isolation and then they become afraid faster. So, um, yeah, that is what I've seen uh, in other programs as well. That's why I always give advice. Listen, it's not only a dog that you hold for tracking or at front of the gate, that dog need to go out of the park and do environmental work. Otherwise, yeah, it can be, uh, he can become isolated. And uh, a shepherd is, is trained on movement because that's why they're so good in bite work. If they see something, reflex, they take everything in. And uh, yeah, that costs a lot of uh, yeah brain work for them. I hope you understand me a little bit. It's no, more into the dog work, but yeah, that's that's like that's that's like how I see and what I've seen around the world, like uh, more units. Yeah, this is like a perfect uh, segue to basically talk. Like, you know, I think uh, in some applications we get asked, like, "Oh, why don't you just use these guys and these dogs and you know do it this way?" I, I don't think a lot of 
folks are aware that, um, you know, for example, placing Thor or Clive or any of our Malinois or uh, even our Dutch Shepherd and stuff like that, that's a three to four year plan before it actually touches the ground. Um, We are talking, so like Wesley and I right now, we've been talking for, I think, a full calendar year already about a sibling to Thor who we will deploy for GCF. In the meantime, Wesley's training that canine for tracking. And in the meantime, I'm taking hundreds of meetings, site location checks, and um, interviewing partners for the right team because you can't just add a canine to an anti-poaching unit like Wesley said. Um, even if it's an what we would consider a easier or softer dog to handle, uh, something like a hound or a Labrador or a Cocker Spaniel, um, because at an anti-poaching unit or a reserve that has more than one anti-poaching unit on it, that team has to have the right infrastructure so that there's accountability for the rangers. Those rangers have to have enough discipline to go out and do what they need to do on their regular patrols, plus take on the life care of a canine and retrain. Then we as GCF are huge proponents on consistent retraining. And that's where we bring in Wesley and Christian Fisser uh, with Kilo 9 so that we can maintain the efforts as well. So they always have us and additional resources. And before that even happens, you need to make sure that that reserve or that unit's going to be around for a while or has some type of permanence to the fact that you can safely give them the canine and they're not going to quote disappear in six months or a year because not every, uh, not every anti-poaching unit or ranger team is permanent. Some are seasonal, some are by contract, some are, um, third party vendors on site with a concession. Some are national parks, some are private reserve, private staff. And so you have to know this whole infrastructure before you add a canine. And usually how we start the program is, let's say I've identified a team that we work well with and that works well on their own, that has the right infrastructure. So they've got good, decent rangers on staff. They've got a hierarchy of seniority with some guys who've been around for a long time. And they've got a good reserve manager who's very involved with the team and can make sure things go. Then I go to that reserve and we start talking about okay, so what do you think we need to do with these canines? And then with our collective experience from canine handling and anti-poaching, I'll start talking to them about what I think is going to fit best after they tell me their needs. Because everybody wants a Malinois or a Dutch Shepherd, but I don't think anybody realizes how much work that is to maintain and to properly use for the dog and the aspect of work. Um, before they actually have had to handle one. Um, because like Wesley said, everything's super easy when the instructor's there and he's telling you what you're doing and you're working with uh, you know, a senior ranger. But as soon as they're gone, um, the ranger needs to maintain and sustain that and keep in communication with our instructors so that they can go through every different obstacle that happens naturally in the week. The dog might get spooked on something. The dog might try to cheat a behavior. The dog might um, lose or become lax in certain other behaviors where you have to find corrections or redirections. And before you know it, like I said, we're talking about two to three years in advance of placing this canine. And so when we actually finally put the canine on the ground, 
the second wing of all that timeline goes. And we're right there with them for the next several months consistently on retraining after they've been placed on the team because the canines are living, breathing uh, life forms that require to practice and consistency and um, a healthy relationship with their handler. So you can't just drop them and go and you can't just leave them alone. So it's a very full-time thing if you want it to be done correctly. Um, We have obviously hit multiple reserves that are like, oh, I just want a big, mean, scary dog on a leash. And they think it's going to bite or they think it's going to search. And then you get this guy who's just saying search in a different language. You know, there's usually three to five different languages used for canines. But they're like, suk, suk, suk. And they're pointing at everything while the dog is doing everything. And it means nothing to the dog. And, um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes these guys get frustrated with the dog when it's actually their fault. Um, So we don't allow that system to happen. So we work on this huge platform of multiple years, lots of meetings, lots of confirmations and lots of fail checkpoints so that even if something happens or changes once the canine's there, it's not a huge catastrophe and the dog's not in a dangerous situation or it's not. Uh, left idle. So, um, Robert, I know you've actually seen many of our canines and have actually been in sight with lots of them and you've seen the training and all that stuff. Um, I mean, do you think as, for example, if I were to have, if I were to hand you Odin, mm-hmm. could, you, could you, do you think you could safely go through a, an airport and a mall and then, uh, you know, handle him and correct him or guide him? No, not at all. And that's the craziest part is it's not like you say, it's not like a, you know, you don't just point and say something. It's like a harmonious like relationship. And it's really interesting to see like when it works, it works because all of these parts are put together and it flows like a well-oiled machine and you can't expect one, you know, it's like a partnership, right? You can't expect your partner to do more work than you're willing to give in. Um, And so like you like, yeah, absolutely. And it's like you say, you know, you spend, four years, you know, working so that when this, you know, when the partner, when the dog meets the, the handler, everything flows smoothly. And, um, and, and it's really weird because you really don't appreciate how much work goes into it until you see how, like you, you see like the, the steps behind the magic or the, 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 the work behind the curtain kind of thing. Like I, yeah. I'm always blown away whenever, I, when we're, whenever we're like we're on site and we're, you know, Christians like training or I'm seeing like the result of, of cumulative training. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is hard. And you have to keep up. It's not like you don't, you don't, your dog doesn't like graduate, you know, sniffer school and it's like done. You have to like continually, like you say, retrain and, and go out there and try other things. Try new scenarios. Yeah. yeah. And then it's a, it's a complex circle. Um, mm-hmm. Wesley, you've, you've, um, you've seen the same issues I have many times cause you're also one of the instructors in that field and <laughs> you're trying to bridge that gap. I think one thing that we've all seen across the entire world is that the canine, as soon as it's done, the canine actually knows better than the handler what they're doing when they're fresh out of training. And every time you hand a canine to a handler for the most part, the canine skills decline mm-hmm. and you have to build up the skills back with the handler because there's this like communication gap in, in um, partnership gap at first that causes these kind of misconnections, if you will. 
Yes, that's correct. And what you say, it's like um, sometimes it's so easy. So, for example, what you say, um, a lot of programs, they get a lot of money. So, for example, millions to set up like a canine program. And uh, even like the basic things about how you take care of the dogs and that the dogs need to have something for ticks or uh, every month they need to, something like they need to go to uh, um, a veterinary, for example. So even like the basic thing, how you take care about the dogs is something for our world, for Europe or for America, so natural. But if you go to the, those countries, sometimes in the beginning, I bl- blame those people that I think like, what? Why are you doing this? And then you see that there's no training at all. So last time I was in South America doing like an anti-wildlife trafficking operation with our own team and our own dogs. And they asked us to visit the narcotics dogs. And it was so, in five minutes, I see the dogs are scratching uh, their skin so badly. And I ask, hey, do you do you give the treatment? And they're looking like treatments? No. So they buy a really expensive dog. They did three weeks training and they fly back. And there was nobody helping them with what you say, where you're so busy yet about, okay, before tour is coming, the kennel need to be set up, the treatment need to be set up, like everything, like so easy and normal that we think, yeah, of course, no, that's not normal for them. So mm-hmm. even when I'm there, I say, listen, you need to do this. They look at me and they say, nobody say, say this to us. And I say, okay, I'm surprised. But then, yeah, little easy basic thing about the protocol, about an hand rule for about how you take care about the dogs. It's like for us, and yeah, we grew up with dogs, so natural, but in those countries, not. And especially uh, if you see dogs are, are working and they're, they're losing their fate. So they're searching and they know they're not going to find anything. So then... If you see that I hide two times or three times the toy, the dog will start uh, life again. They become happy. Mm. They become a search. And the handler see, whoa, what's happening? I say, listen, you deploy the dog every single day and you don't find anything. Or, yeah, you're standing here full in the sun and you wait till the, all the luggage is there. And I say, listen, your operational deployment need to be waiting till all the luggage is there then you take the dog out of an air conditioning room and then search at one time so sometimes it's it's so easy and so basic but they don't know and that's why it's important and you say it correct it, t- it costs like two years to set up like a really good uh anti-poaching unit or anti-wildlife trafficking uh with, yeah with uh yeah trainers coming in to do like because, yeah, basic training doesn't mean that you do operational training, what you say, like uh, in the middle of the night or do real scenario. In the beginning, if you just start, that's not possible. That's too much for the for the unit. So everything goes step-by-step step work, and that costs time, of course. But if you do the correct steps, yeah, you have the best detection system in the world. But, yeah, of course, you need to do all those steps and all this education, like, so correct uh, otherwise it not make any sense to send any dogs in. Yeah. And, uh, we've actually, I have done that many times where I've actually said to different teams that, um, essentially telling them they're not ready and that I would like to see them have this done before we considered, 
um, deploying a canine or, you know, bringing a canine on because there are so many things. And for us, the, the welfare and the quality of life for those canines comes first. Um, so if the team can't manage that aspect addition to their team, we won't put the dog there at all. So, um, that includes even like to the point of, uh, this retraining thing, once we've identified a reserve and, or a partner or one of our, uh, collaborative units, we will put those Rangers through training months before they actually get the dog and then have them work with different teams and shadow different teams. And we send them around to do that. And it's, it's part of this big buildup so that they're successful. And then it's crazy. Cause once you do it, the dog slides in like, you know, <laughs> like this high speed asset to the team that just really maximizes everything. I mean, like, look how, look how Thor has slid into, um, our Mignani GCF Zululand conservation trust team. Um, Thor has found several pangolins, uh, that have not been in the tag system as of recent. They either the tags fell off or the pangolin was, hasn't been seen from the researchers. Um, and also has saved a couple pangolins that try to make a break for highway crossings and got picked up on, um, a system that we all use called Laura, um, with earth ranger. And, you know, Thor can take it from a giant aerial search down to a surgical regional search. And at the same time, he's doing daily patrols and incursion checks and all these other things for man tracking. And the team now, um, I was just working with them a couple months ago and I spent, uh, I think a week and a half with the guys, but we were out multiple times a day rotating between, um, the three canines on the, the unit. Um, which is Thor, Rolo, and then um, the manager's um, hound. And we were working between the different, you know, locations on the reserve. And they were all so excited because they're all at an advanced stage now. They're all able to recognize the dog's behaviors. They all work in unison. And when we're talking about field operations, the canine fits into the functional piece of the team that becomes the tracker. So when you're a man tracker or you're working in counter poaching, anti-poaching, and you're in a tracking formation, it's usually in a Y formation or an extended formation line where you have kind of a sweep. But the canine takes the place of the tracker to which there's flanks on the side that are the eyes and ears and protection. And then there's a team leader behind them. In some cases, the team leader is also the tracker in that situation if there's not enough guys. But what it does is you can have confidence in your speed and efficiency with that canine. Well, also, if you are tracking, you can confirm certain details um, as well when you're going through this exercise or real scenario. And um, the guys get more confidence, the canines are happy, and things work really well. Uh, to counter that, you know, we have also been called in to help salvage teams where dogs are malnourished and they aren't trained properly at all. And then they weren't maintained. And then, um, you know, somebody from the business side of an operation, like the higher ups of a national park or the higher ups of a nonprofit, are like, well, can you come make my canines work? And it's like, eh, that's not really how it works. Like you can, you can actually really mess up canines and get to a point where it's, it's almost at a point where you probably should call it 
um, because you don't have the right staff or the dogs don't have the right s- structure or, you know, treatment is not available and they're getting injured or it's too hot and there's so many things involved. So, um, it's a complex system. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of crazy to, when you kind of really start laying it out and talking about it, it's not so, not so simple to apply a canine. No, no. It's like an intricate web. Mm-hmm. So Wesley, when you are training these puppies from, you know, eight weeks old, I, this is another thing that I never really took in consideration until like I saw the, the making of the, of the foundation of everything. But like, what do you look for into a dog? Cause not every dog has that drive to be a sniffer dog. Is there any like clear signs or clear indications where you're like, Oh, this dog is going to be a good sniffer dog or this dog may not have the drive. Yes, uh, of course. So, um, yeah, we do like a special uh, test. So, um, yeah, what I say, if we we go first, we look into the genetics because everything starts with the genetics. And what, what do I mean about that is that, of course, I look, okay, if I want a shepherd, I look, okay, who is breed, who are the parents, what they are doing, and it's also with the hunting dogs. So, for example, like Tor, uh, Tor is litter, and um, he comes from a really good breeder. So, also like compliments for the for the breeder. Um, I test a lot of puppies. So, I test them, for example, on on the toy drive, of course. But especially, yeah, it sounds like so easy. I take a little bit sausage in my in my hand, and I make a spot on the floor. Mm-hmm. What you see is that. Some puppies will go, hey, they follow their nose. Some are going to play. And um, when they find the spot and I pick the puppy up and I step like two steps, three steps away and I'm doing them on the floor, some puppies forget. But you have some puppies that will search. They know like I need to find something. And those puppies, I can take them to the other side of the property, for example, and they start sniffing. And those dogs are are the best sniffers so it's so easy test um and especially tours later i i have compliments about that breeder because i test like the, the little of tour uh he got a brother he's also like operational dog in the uk uh for missing persons really good dog and i see four other dogs that are good enough so i can really pick on color normal i don't do it if i test like a shepherd i say only one or two after the search drive, what I want. If you look at the buy drive, for example, with Shepherd, more dogs are good enough. But I look not only for the bite, because bite work is not brain work, I always say. I want brain work mm-hmm. uh, for a sniffer dog and uh, see yeah, what's the, the search to drive. Yeah, and then sometimes even when a client wants that I pick like three litters, three puppies, I say only no, one is good enough to train. So, of course, me, but also my compliment for my team. So I have a team behind me because I travel around the world. They take care of about uh, the dogs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Tor, if you see them uh, from eight weeks, really intense training. Um, yeah. And then you hear like the first week when we leave uh, that he already found something. Uh, that's what. That's why we, we do this. Uh, and, um yeah, I was so happy that um, uh, I did the basic training that uh, Christian and Strainer say, listen, uh, I see Tori, he's like amazing. And the guys that, that uh, what you say, really good. Uh, 
still really good basic training. So yeah, then I'm more than happy uh, to hear that everything goes by plan. So um, yeah, not every dog. I look for the diamonds mm-hmm. and a lot of dog programs when I visit, not a lot of dogs um, are good enough. So even when I go there or Christian go there and we go there so many times, it's not good enough. It's all about the genetics yeah. and if they're not fearful. So I say, listen, kijk, for example, I'm an operator. So I mean, like, um, I start as an operational sniffer dog handler. Um, Christian starts as a ranger. So he know, and yeah, we know what the guys need on the field, for example. But a lot of programs, uh, the dogs are trained by dog trainers. Dog trainers, they've never been in operational world. So then you yep. see a dog do the job, but what if, if I sent them from a cold to the Netherlands, sent them to South Africa, and then he needs to track in a big five with the temperature like really hot. And it was amazing when we put Thor the force track out and he was taking like, bam, if it was nothing. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah we did some environment with deers and with goats but not the rhino not the elephant and he doesn't care he was trekking so yeah it was like fascinating to see but all everything starts from the, the the heart and the soul from the dog and the, yeah the drive to do that and that everything start with that selection test yes yeah i think that's a that's like it's it's nothing against i think some some people almost get their feelings hurt when you're like well this dog isn't right for the job but i think if you're honest with yourself and the the way you select dogs from the very beginning you don't have those train crashes but essentially to add on to wesley's point a lot of folks who are not in the actual operational side of the industry are trying to in their best intentions create a product that it helps but commonly unfortunately for like the main reason gcf started our canine wing uh, years ago was because we saw so many canines that just weren't able to do the job or the task that they're supposed to do. And that comes from a little bit of some of the old, I'd call it 1950s mentality of training dogs, uh, as well as folks who don't have operational experience. And then of course you have some folks who are just a little shady with how they do certain training as well. Mm -hmm. So you get dogs that quote do a certain behavior, but we'll call it one out of 10 times. It's truly on its mark versus that dog is enjoying its work. It's doing the job it likes to do and it's succeeding at it. And then the Rangers are succeeding too. You know, that's a lot harder of a calculation because this kind of comes back to that same thing of like, some people just think, oh, you get a big, scary dog and you put it on the leash and you yeah. walk it around and all of a sudden you've got a, you've got yourself a personal protection dog. And the truth is, is specifically with like that realm, it's those dogs are not going to bite in the way you want them to if they actually even bite in a defensive or protective situation. Um, and that same thing with the nose work and the tracking. If the dog is nervous, scared, distracted, or can't can't actually run on its drive with focus, it's not going to complete the task. And so it's kind of a fail for everybody. Um, and so it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work and a lot of planning, but it is so worth it. Um, I do personally believe with all of the different aspects that I work in and uh, anti-poaching and counter wildlife trafficking canines hands down are the best addition uh, to a team 
if possible for the operation. Um, they add more weight in the efficiency and effectiveness category than any other one tool besides a trained person. Um, so if you're starting with any core operation, when we like, for example, are looking at an operation as GCF and how we're going to help and get involved, training the people to establish threshold and then retraining and keeping that consistent is your biggest building block that you have to do alongside good standard equipment. And then if we were to look at anything else, because everybody's like, oh, add fence line trippers and add GPSs and add drones and add all the stuff, hands down, canines, when possible, are the best addition for the biggest advantage buying outside of any other tool. And then you can add other tools if it makes sense in the toolbox of you know anti-poaching and counter-poaching and counter-wildlife trafficking. Um, so it's, you know, again, big calculation, lots of moves, but being honest with the dog or yourself or the team about certain things, you know, uh, you got to do it so that essentially the canine and the team doesn't fail because lives will be on the line in this line of work. So if a canine doesn't protect a ranger when things go heavy and you got to get, you know, toe to toe with a poacher, that dog doesn't bike and it doesn't actually protect the dog could die and the handler could die. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to come to that. Or if the dog is improperly indicating, that might be been the thread through the needle timeline where you actually had the opportunity to get that trafficker and the dog didn't actually indicate uh, because it's either under-simulated, overworked, under, you know, the care threshold's not right or it's just not the right combination of working, training, breed traits that you need. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's... It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it really is a really intricate. It's kind. Of, it's like, you know, there's just so many moving gears, and and it's so weird because it, maybe that's like the the magic behind it. Because you're like, oh, this is just a really good working dog with a really good, you know, ranger partner, and it's it's so not the case. And there's so much moving cogs and stuff like that, and it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I'm sorry, Weston. I always say to people. Um, if you got the money enough to buy an airplane, it doesn't mean that you're a pilot. Yeah. <laughs> and there's something uh, with a lot of programs that they buy a lot of dogs, mm-hmm. but they don't invest in training the people. So I will say you only need two dogs, but spend the rest of the money in training yeah, the people. And we're going to focus on training the trainer concept. Mm-hmm. Yep. And... Uh, then you're successful. Um, and in a lot of cases, they buy too many dogs, uh, basic training, two weeks, and yeah, then they think it's going to work. And that's not going to work. And um, yeah, if you talk about save somebody's lives, yeah, I, I don't understand why are uh, so many companies or trainers to try to become like, oh, we do, we're starting to do anti-poaching work because it's look really good on social media mm-hmm. or they love the mm-hmm. adrenaline and the action. Yeah, then you talk about serious problems. Um, and there's a powerful about social media, but now you see a lot of dog trainers that try to be become in the field. And I think that's really dangerous uh, Yeah, with that. So, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. There's uh, essentially there are far too many people that are glory-seeking and attention-seeking um, versus doing it for the right reasons and providing the right content or taking the simple time to learn 
what actually needs to be done and what actually needs to be an output for that canine. Cause we mm. see it all the time. There's, you know, it's, it's just a, a point of the field. You have to have experience to be successful and you get a lot of pop-up efforts or short lived efforts that are trying to essentially grab the attention in the space, but they're not doing a service for anybody actually in the field of wildlife conservation because they're not, they don't actually have the experience. And so in one way or another, they're, they're actually causing an issue somewhere in the line um, to which it usually, unfortunately, in this case is going to fall on the canine. The canine is going to be the animal left behind, sent somewhere remote that is not going to have the right care support structure and training structure. Yeah, it's weird how there's like a you know, blessing in disguise when it comes to social media, you know, because you get to see all the really cool things that, you know, Wesley and, and, you know, the GCF is doing. And then you also get those like, would you call them like copycats or would you call them just people trying like clout chasing or like how, how would you how do you how do you handle that kind of intimidate or no, um, what's the word when you're copycatting? Yeah, I mean, I, I see them. I see them generally i'm not there's obviously we're not making any one specific no 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 yeah thing but generally when i see them i see them as a glory and or attention seeking types mm, okay. um they're the same folks that try to come into anti-poaching to quote shoot all the poachers sure uh, they don't they don't actually know what's going on and they're not actually there to be a part of the solution they're there for themselves in the aspect of what they want it to be mm-hmm not what it should be. <laughs> it's really interesting. It's weird too. I don't know. It, it's, it's really weird. Um, like listen, to you guys talk about like, um, you know, making sure it's the right ranger for the right dog. And it's so weird. Cause every, every dog that I've ever seen with any of our rangers, they're always like the coolest and they'll do anything and everything for their dog. And, and, um, and I, I guess I, I'm having like a proud, like mom moment. I'm like, ah, oh. like, yeah, our handlers are awesome. I mean, really good. We actually have to work with our handlers more to not spoil the dogs to a point where it causes behavioral issues, yeah. <laughs> which is the best problem to have. Um, they're not, we're not worried about them mistreating the dogs. We're yeah. more about like, okay, be careful with that, that behavior line because you're actually, the dog's going to end up doing this in the yeah. short run yeah. or long run. And that's a good problem to have. Yeah. <laughs> What I, what I always say is like um, the first thing if you uh, deploy a dog to a new unit, um, the moments that uh, nobody's watching says enough. Mm-hmm. So I like the last time when I see Tor, I see two or three guys. They're really, uh, they love dogs. You see that. So they go yeah. there to him to cuddle him and everything. So I always say if they love the dogs, and they have passion to take care about the dogs, there's something what I cannot train. So mm. I did some programs that they force some law enforcement agents to become wildlife detection dog. It doesn't work. And especially if you have some culture that a dog is nothing, means mm-hmm. nothing for them. So I always say, yeah, that's the first thing. I cannot train that. Um, so everything starts from that. Um, and of course, you need to build up. And uh, what you say, Mike, uh, it's not only the even when there are dogs that's standing in front of the uh, uh, on an airport or a national park, and they know that there's a dog. There's also like 
uh, a, a mental thing that the poacher or the wildlife trafficking know, listen, corruption is everywhere. They can pay some guys, but the dogs, they know like, okay, I don't take the risk now because the dogs are working there. So they go to some some other park or another duty. So it's also, and they found also like cell phones from poachers that they say, hey, watch out with that spot because the dogs are working there. They are afraid of the dogs. And that's something like a, a mental yeah, war for so that is like a really good thing because they're afraid because they know they will fight with a ranger, but they not fight with the dog. Sure. Um, and yeah. you can go in and uh, do uh, um, special techniques that they can, the rangers cannot read the dogs, but the dogs will track them down and they know that. So yeah, that's a good game thing also. It's so yeah, it's, it's really, um, yeah, really nice to see that if, um, if they found some cell phone and they see, hey, listen, the dogs are there, watch out. Yeah, that's also like really good intel because you know it's working. And uh, yeah. Yeah, we actually, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, dogs are a proactive and reactive asset for conservation. So the proactive is, you know, that forward information, that forward intel. Um, we, we can call it propaganda, if you will, too. You do things with the dog that you know the poachers and the traffickers are going to hear about or learn about, and that's going to slow them down, cause them to change methods, and they're going to make mistakes. You know, when you when when you're essentially when we're delaying somebody in poaching or in trafficking, we anytime we cause them to shift their game plans, they're more likely to make a mistake and they're more likely to get caught. So that's comes from anything where if they get on the reserve and they think there's no dog there and all of a sudden a canine shows up now they're scrambling they're not using the exit strategy or the you know the pickup strategy that they were supposed to they might drop and run and leave all their stuff behind to which we might end up confiscating the tools of the trade that they need or they might have missed completely not gotten a shot off not anything like that and they just had to bail and that makes it more expensive for the syndicate operations, which is what we want too. Because the higher the re- the higher the risk, the lower the reward threshold becomes every time they attempt. So we are sliding the scale in the risk factor versus the reward, which means we're a harder target, or that's a harder target, or that's a harder thing to penetrate through them. And that makes it more expensive for them, which is what we want, because essentially in theory, we are also dealing with a cost threshold of how many rangers and canines and da 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 So when someone like a corrupt official or a corrupt, um, let's call them customs agent, gets paid off, and then all of a sudden the canine unit shows up and they're not on the payroll, and that guy has to send the other dude a, a text and say, don't come through here, they're, the canines are here. That cost them the money to pay off those guys, that window they threaded, all of the different movements to move the parts and the assets and the illegal contraband, and they missed their window that day because the canine showed up. Mm-hmm. Boom. Or the dog confiscates that product, which is an even bigger loss for them. Um, and that forward information goes out, and you start to complicate their game that they're playing against you. Hundred percent, and what you see also, like um, especially if you talk about wildlife trafficking on airports or seaports, um, yeah, it's already on the move, so they cannot 
take it back. So then you find something if you do some different flights. And especially, I always say, um, okay, listen, we're going to work on the border there. I want some undercover uh, wildlife department officer standing mm-hmm. way at front of the of the of the main gate because you will see some change of behavior, some vehicles that go out, and especially if you work with spotters like that, you found way more because mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's so interesting to see uh, if you yeah you stand there a dog and even like you motivated uh, officers. So for example, in some uh, areas. Um, if they're working uh, at the seaport, normal, nobody was looking for wildlife. So the police officers only look for narcotics. But now the wildlife detection dogs search behind them. So they're going to focus also on wildlife because they think, oh, then then they complain if we found something that uh, they're not looking for it. So even then you see the law enforcement, they're going to start working more and they see, oh, there's so many wildlife that you found as a living one in Asia, for example. Mm-hmm. It motivates as well the, the whole team, uh, the law enforcement side as well. So, yeah, normal, they only take one car out. But now the canine units show up with really motivated uh, wildlife detection dog handlers and their passion is wildlife. So they want to do every single car. So <laughs> that, that's yep. also something, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, especially, um, yeah, I, I work, I love to work with small NGOs and I always say, don't force your, uh, wildlife officers to work with dogs. They need to have a passion with wildlife. Otherwise, yeah, you're missing something. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And then in the, in the actual, we'll call it field strategy for like a reserve protection, um, I'll share one of the tactics that we have, and this is very common. So usually when we're talking about counter poaching and anti-poaching, you're working on the deter, deflect, delay, distract um, application of what your activities are doing on the reserve against those who are wishing to come in illegally. So when you can do something, for example, so a presence patrol, a presence patrol is an aspect where you can actually put someone somewhere that you know is going to be seen and that's going to get into the information chain of the poachers. For example, if it's a Friday night and it's a holiday weekend and you know there's going to be a surge in uh, poaching that week and you amplify or you make your presence known in certain areas where the people from the public are most likely to see you, even the most honest conversation is going to come out and be like, whoa, did you see how many rangers are there? Did you see how kitted they are? They're fully suited up. Did you see they have dogs? Um, that's a, you can do that with a presence patrol. That can be something where you're visible on a fence line, visible at a gate. You have an actual roadblock. Um, you're doing site inspections at different locations on the reserve, or you're responding to these areas. At the same time, you can also be doing, um, you know, your undercover stuff like what's talking about. So you can, you can essentially, you set this, this play, a chess play, there might actually be a vehicle inspection at the reserve gate, but a quarter of a mile down or a couple kilometers away, there's actually a plainclothes vehicle watching these vehicles come in. And when they try to come in or go out or leave this region, you see a behavior change. You're also getting intel. You're doing license plates, make model of those vehicles, um, suspect descriptions. 
And sometimes, depending on the jurisdiction and where you are, you might actually be able to stop them and arrest them as well if you've got stuff on them. Um, and you get this bigger chess play, more complex, more advanced, proactive, reactive, defensive, and distracting and deterring. And before you know it, anytime there's a canine, <laughs> generally poachers are like, no thanks. I don't want to play that game, especially if they know the team knows how to use it. So, um, for example, Mignani. Uh, with Thor and Rolo on site. Um, one of the funniest things is, is they got Thor first and that was part of the plan. And Thor is easy. He's a sweet dog. Um, well, he's easy for us. Uh, he's a sweet dog. He has very easy to read behaviors and they did great with that. And they all wanted to be Thor's handler. Well, then Rolo came and Rolo's a Dutch shepherd and he's, you know, just probably about 90 pounds He's got good weight on him. You know, he's big boy. That's a daunting, scary dog. Half the APU team was terrified of Rolo. And then the two primary handlers were now like, well, who handles Rolo? Because they both wanted to handle Rolo because he's this big, scary dog. But Rolo doesn't do bite work. And we did that on purpose so that Rolo would be easier to handle and maintain. However, the poachers don't know that. <laughs> so whenever they see Rolo, we've actually in the Intel chains, you know, not this specific situation, but in others, you know, people think they're, you know, that the Rangers are walking a hyena. They're like, oh my gosh, what is that giant beast? It becomes folklore. Um, and that actually does more in the protection aspect than the actual daily, you know, patrol sweep because during the daily patrol sweep, you actually might not see or do anything and you're doing retraining with the canine, but that information line getting out into the, the poachers community set, they're like, no, there's, there's a team over there and they've got a hyena on a leash that they use for, you know, tracking and training. Like it becomes comedy for us at least. Um, and these are applications that become added bonuses to a good team, a good effort, a good strategy, um, a very good reserve. And then on top of all of that, the thing that's nice is you can have targeted wildlife protection aspects with a canine. So you could do, for Thor's example, pangolin conservation while also be doing the protection and conservation of 100 plus other species that are in that same reserve space without having to interfere with them and be invasive. So that's the proactive protection side and it can also be the reactive protection side if something happens and you're trying to catch a suspect or something like that so they really canines really do like fold into so many aspects and layers outside of this simple application of it's just a dog or i just want this dog to do this you know when you have a good team and you have a good infrastructure and we have awesome instructors like wesley all of a sudden it's not just a, a stagnant chess piece it's a yeah. very advanced life cycle moving at all times it really is interesting I love mm. it. so wesley if you're training a dog to smell for like ivory or explosives or anything like that this is this is a really silly question because i i don't know it but what what does ivory smell like like does it have a like i know for the dogs it's different but for a human how would you describe for me the viewers like what would what would ivory smell like yeah, it, it depends. If you got a natural eye, ivory, so the real tusk, mm -hmm. yeah, we humans smell, yeah, 
we also smiled by ourselves. Um, they smiled really like, yeah, I cannot explain the smell in, in English, sorry oh, for that. Okay. Okay. But uh, yeah, it has a specific scent. Oh. So, uh, but the ivory, what they changed to uh, jewelry, uh, the ivory craft, for example, mm-hmm. yeah, that they make chest uh, pieces from it. That one, we as human, we cannot sniff that. Oh, so um, only the dogs can do that. Um, but the normal ivory is like an rhino for the same. Yeah, you smell it really strong. Mm-hmm. So even the dogs pick it up like really uh, easy. And that was the, the funny part, for example. Yeah, we make an association between like the ivory or the rhino with the toy. And mm-hmm. we hide it so many times. And then we take the toy away. And then the dog yeah, indicate on the ivory. And then we reward it fast. So for the dog, it's just a game. And that's sure. why it's so important yeah, the toy uh, needs to mean everything for the dog. Um, but yeah, every single... Uh, uh, so, for example, Thor, we imprint on a small amount of pangolin. The moment when he found, like, a real pangolin mm-hmm. living, he <laughs> air-scented from so far away, and he tush, he runs fast to it. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's amazing to see, because, yeah, I trained on a small amount of sand, and I tried to make a bigger... Yeah, bigger amount of sand, but yeah. yeah, it was so easy for him because he trained on, on a small amount, and then there was a living a living pangolin over there, and he really loves it. And what's so special about Thor is that uh, I imprint him on pangolin when he was younger, mm-hmm. and then I heard that he need to uh, train like search for pangolins, and at front we give him the scent of pangolin so you know. And normal, some dogs say, "Hey, I love this pangolin scent." And the human scent is not so interesting anymore. Mm-hmm. And with Thor, you don't see the difference between pangolin scent and uh, human scent. So you go with the same passion into it. And that's, yeah, really special. Let's say something about the dog because a lot of dogs will say, hey, I love the pangolin too much. Mm-hmm. The human scent is boring. But yeah, Thor don't um, do not do that. That's yeah, like, he, uh, I was impressed uh <laughs> he's not big but he pulls i mean he's got he's got some strength behind him when he when he air sense and then goes for the pangolin when you got him on on the the actual track he is like so determined to get to that pangolin it's hilarious i was like wow he is it's like like he's magnetized and he just is like boom and like like wesley said he air sense from so far away it's like you see his behavior change, head lift, boom. And then it's like, well, oh, he's, and then like all of a sudden he's like really, he's like tractor pulling. <laughs> cool. he, is, he is so friendly to the pangolin. So that's also good to see. But normal, yes. this breed, the hunters used to, to fight with wild boars. So normal. And I believe if one time, even when Thor's like a sweet dog, if a poacher have like a threat on his, on his rain and on the on the ranger, yeah, I always believe that a dog will change. So my grandma have in the past a, a sweet Labrador, the sweetest at all. And one time somebody tried on the street to, to steal something from her. And that lab protect her with his whole passion. So, yeah, um, I always say, yeah, sometimes if the, if, yeah, the handler is on so much um, yeah, dangerous, that the dog will protect. Because normal, that dog... Uh, will fight. Yeah, will fight against wild boar. I see them 
hunting and I was like, whoa, they are so small, but <laughs> yeah, later become, they're so strong, so powerful. So mm-hmm. size doesn't say anything. And that's, that's why I always say to people, yeah, don't always look at the big dog because uh, especially if you do undercover work, I got like a really good story about two weeks ago. The police contact me, say, Wesley, we want to do a special search operation. But uh, yeah, if they see a shepherd, they they not come. So sure. I stand there with my Cocker Spaniel uh, on a boat <laughs> and with my normal clothes. And you need to see that guy, the panic in his guy, in his in the, in the suspect's eye when my Cocker Spaniel attacked that bike, <laughs> was full with narcotics, and <laughs> bam, he was on it, and he was <laughs> looking like, oh fuck. And and they see my uh, my uh, my my uh, my earplug, and you think, oh fuck! And yeah, that that person full with narcotics in his back and his house. So they say the police say, listen, oh, I'm really surprised about this dog because this dog was jumping and searching so many uh, boats. And they say normal, like uh, uh, the bigger dogs need to have rest or anything. And this dog is like. It looked like he's on, on narcotics as well because he keeps searching. And I say, that, yeah, that's the power of like using using like a, do- a dog that nobody thinks it's a police dog. And yeah. then you use him for that kind of operation. And it was like perfect on spot. So, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, that moment, the panic in his eyes was like, oh. And, and yeah, after that, they, they say, look out for a, a small dog uh, because, yeah, the dog is really good. So, yeah, it was... It was a good thing, but nobody expected. And that's why sometimes it's so powerful. <laughs> Wesley, I don't think I've ever asked, um, how did you set up scent imprint conservation dogs and uh, scent imprint dogs? Where, when did you do it and how long ago? And I guess, no. what was your motivation? No, okay. So I always say I'm not a good business uh, owner, for example. So I don't do it for the money. I just do it for the passion. So... The first five years, I only work as an uh, explosive and narcotic dogs handler. Um, and at that, at that time, I was uh, the last two years, I was like senior dog handler and everything goes well. And then I was still, uh, I was younger. And then I got the I can, uh, a job opportunity to go to, the, to America mm-hmm. to work with one of the best uh, trackers uh, and tactical trackers. Uh, of the world so I can work there so I worked three months um, by place Jeff Shetler is one of a mentor from me and he's really good with uh, tracking dogs and especially tactical tracking so the special uh, so the the Marines come there to do the special training Mm -hmm. and I learned there a lot about tracking in the real world so uh, yeah then I come back and I was thinking hey if I go back to the job what I was doing uh, yeah, somebody say, hey, you need to do this, uh, this to job, and blah, blah, blah. So I say, I, I'm going to train some dogs, but I only sell them if I know where they're going to. Uh, and I, I will look a year, and then everything goes out of control. So Sentry Print for Dogs is my uh, normal uh, company that I train people. Uh, I, uh, I train dogs for security, customs, uh, police an explosive and narcotics dogs. And then, um, yeah, Rory Young. Um, yeah, oh, Rory. Mike, yeah. yeah, Rory contact me. Um, he's, of course, a uh, so special person that we lost. Uh, but, yeah, his work was so amazing. And he asked me, Wes, can you help me with this situation to train a dog uh, to, 
the search for ivory, but they hide the ivory with a booby trap in Mali. Can you help me? So that was my first conservation project. And after that, yeah, Indonesia call, uh, still a really big project, you know, for wildlife trafficking. And then too many conservation jobs uh, call me for help. And I was thinking, hey, I just do it separately about the conservation job. Santa Brent for Dog is just, um, yeah, to get the money. And uh, because, uh, of course, some projects what I do about conservation, I get money, but a lot of is also like non-profit. Sure. Uh, and I still uh, try to help everybody or, uh, yeah, as much as I can. But, of course, uh, I have also children. I need to feed and pay the rent, the rent, of course. So, yeah, then I think, hey, I just make it clear about the conservation sites or only the conservation dogs. And the other dogs are like a different website and everything and social media channel. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I, you know, it's funny. I knew you worked with Rory, but I forgot. Like, it's funny how much has happened in the last several years. Um, the, that was you had cocker spaniels for Rory, right? Yes. Yeah. It was what Mitch. He passed away. Yeah. But that cocker spaniel found so many around national park roadblocks, ammunition, uh, pangolin, and that dog was like, bump. Yeah, it was fire. And I say, you need to try it, Mike. One Cocker Spaniel, believe me. <laughs> I know, I but know. <laughs> they Believe me, those dogs are like, yeah, so sweet, so easy to handle. And they're like search machine. And they search with a, yeah, with a drive inside. I have like a, a little puppy now. And I look like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and uh, yeah, don't understand me wrong. I love shepherds. I am also a really good shepherd, sure. But yeah. With the Cocker Spaniel, uh, sometimes, uh, yeah, the life is easy. But, yeah, especially um, in Central Africa, Mali, yeah, those dogs are, like, so easy. They need to have a little bit of food mm -hmm. uh, because, yeah, that's also something. Uh, if you work in a country where they're not selling dog food yep. and you bring a lot of big shepherds in, they use a lot of dog food. And what we see, um, yeah, Mike, that, uh, that they contact us, that they change the park managers, for example, and that park manager don't care about dogs and there was mm -hmm. no dog food anymore. And then I try, yeah, I call one of my sponsors uh, to, to send like dog food in for a year. And if you see how much money that costs, also by customs. And if you think about a little small dog, they just have a little bit food. Yeah, sometimes it's just easy. That's all things what you need to think, uh, yeah, think uh, in, in the plan about yeah, where that's the dogs a big are working one. Yeah. and can we get easy uh, dog food in. Yeah, there's so many things. And that's yeah. fascinating for me as well, every time. <laughs> in the in that same aspect, yeah, I think I um, where we're sending dogs, we in the process of figuring out locations and stuff, we're looking at is there a veterinarian somewhere within a couple hours that they can get to? Um, the food supply, not only <laughs> not only do they bring in dog food, but do they bring in dog food that actually is healthy? Yeah, like yeah. sometimes in these far off distance places, what they quote call dog food is like horrifying. Like it's unregulated. Who knows what's in it? Uh, who knows where it's made food? And um, so like a good example is Clive, for example, when he goes to uh, Bangladesh, um, we had to talk about 
like a homemade dog food because there is no dog food. <laughs> so we talked about like a baseline of like what they can, what they can actually shop for regularly and what they can access regularly and what needs to be in his food and what not to put in his food. And that was a conversation we had to have so that <laughs> that alone was part of, you know, recovery. If we couldn't get food outside the make the main city and they're on duty in the, the jungles and stuff. Um, because yeah that is a very simple piece uh that can be very hard to handle um just as simple as uh you know like sometimes even shade uh, getting a spot that has shade in the areas that are super hot the most simple of cogs in this puzzle piece can be like (laughs) true roadblocks uh wherever you are it never ends huh no it doesn't uh it's (laughs) always something so no. Wesley, I, yeah. what's uh so far? I know you've worked on a lot of different things. What what is your favorite aspect about working with canines? Yeah, to be honest, uh, I work in so many different disciplines. So um, yeah, dogs still surprise me. So I worked more than seventy years operational. Um, um, yeah, my passion are like the conservation dogs, um, anti-poaching or wildlife trafficking. Um, but something special, and I think that's what I, and I think you 100% know what I mean, is that in the beginning, everything was for me about the dogs. Mm-hmm. So if you train them field rangers with no education system in the beginning, they got a job opportunity to become a detection dog handler. And you see that they're raising, they get energy that you train them, that you see them. And then when they become like really operational, they're like, if they're a special search operation, they're in the room with the generals and all the big star uh, police customs and blah, blah, blah. And they're in the room and they can make the plan and you see how proud they are if they get the certification from a, uh, a detection dog handler and yeah, everything started in the begin with the dogs for me, but that part is way more important for me um, to see that, that they're so happy that you train them and that, that they get the training uh, that make their lives easier uh, because the Rangers normal get, nothing just a little sometimes even not the basic eh? Mm. so if you see that you educate them and they're so proud and people see them yeah that's that's really my motivation and it doesn't matter which discipline or every country have this fascinating operational system how how they deploy so in africa anti-poaching every everybody want to be fast Mm -hmm. for example in asia i work with tracking dogs if we run into the poachers we have got a problem because we got serious even the poachers there they're living in the jungle nobody is searching for them they have like a poacher camp with maybe 17 around 20 poachers and they live in a forest nobody's looking for them and then there are like two rangers going out they see some poacher signs and then they call the dog unit and we show up and we track, and then the moment you think, oh, if we run into them, we got a serious problem. So then the operational system is there, stay away. So yeah, for me, it's like so fascinating to see that the different operational needs and uh, the people and train them. Yeah, 
I cannot pinpoint something. It's it's my mm-hmm. heart and soul. And in the beginning, people say, oh, you, if you do this like this with so much power and uh, your soul, you run out in energy in two years. Or no, it's not going to happen. Uh, no, wait till you got a child. Then you forget about it. Now, even I got a child on my back when he was younger or next <laughs> to me. He helps me now that we're training. Yeah. It never ends. So even now I'm crazy. Sometimes I'm training and uh, the, the fam- family members are coming. They, so they, they, they say to me, Wes, just no training. And I say, no, no, no training. <laughs> and then I train secret like uh, <laughs> fast before the, the family comes. So yeah, there's something. It's a passion inside of me. And I cannot say this job is the best or just I love the dogs, but I love also the people behind. So that's yeah, yeah my motivation. I totally... I totally know what you're saying there yeah it's uh there's uh we do what we what we do in the field to save wildlife and for the animals and of course we absolutely love the dogs but there's a huge part of like being able to successfully empower these rural communities or these places that are under siege with poaching and seeing them succeed is it's just so exciting and you see them get excited and yeah i totally get it um, and and fun. what for me was also like um, um, a little bit, yeah, of course, I'm now like a father and um, that I sent like a pictures about uh, the rhinos without any horns to my son. Mm. And in every book, what he gets, you see the big horns. So he asked like, is that a, a nose horn we call? So a rhino we call nose horn. And I say, yes, but there's no horn. <laughs> How you how you explain it to a little child? So they say, yeah, and uh, that's why I say even we fight against a criminal network with so much money, yeah, we as one person together with all experts, we come together, we work together. Yeah, it makes the difference. Oh uh, yeah, we one park at a time. Team. Yeah, but one park at a time, and even like people that want to listen now, they want to donate. Yeah, you have so so really good that you can donate a dog even on your website and uh, with all the things that yeah that's like even those people just for Christmas yeah donate uh, one of the dogs that you can do and even the gear what you supply a lot of people they buy so many um, dog gear for Christmas for the personal dog and they have mm-hmm. everything even if they donate a little bit of money. Yeah, you guys, you go to a park, you should supply the basic needs, what yeah, what they need. So everybody can make the difference. Absolutely. Yeah, we we definitely have a good uh, infrastructure set up for our canine department of conservation efforts and our own canines. And it's it is exciting because like like you said, you know, as one individual, a lot of these aspects are multifaceted. So you need to come in with more than one set of expertise or one person with all the expertise couldn't possibly do it. So you have to work in a team in these applications so that you can apply the right amount of effort and the right amount of support and not burn yourself out and be effective. Um, And it's really cool because we get to come back and tell these stories. And like, I know uh, I've Wesley and I've been chatting about a couple of things. You know, I get hired as well to work for different entities and organizations, law enforcement bodies around the world and do site audits or embedded operations or whatnot. And I'm always like, Wesley, I'll, like I'll bounce things off of him. Like, 
if a canine were to be able to do this in the field, how would you train this? Or is this something that you think you could train and what would you need from me? And with that, I also get excited because like we are changing the threshold of what canines are actually known for doing in the field. And when you get to apply the canine successfully in these aspects first, it's really cool. Um, you know, especially when you get to work with, with, with them after all of this huge process of fundraising and <laughs> site building and team building and then yeah. importing and then cross training and handler training and then live deployment training. And it's like this big window and it comes into a big puzzle piece. That's like Epic at the end. It just runs. Um, it's pretty cool. And you know, like Wesley said, everybody can support that in more than one way, be involved. Um, you can even come on some of our site tours uh, for example, you can go on eco tours with Natasha and she can take you along as she does site assessments or interviews or um, they're essentially eco tours, but you get to see a really wide variety of behind the scenes stuff that you just don't have access to from the public side. Uh, it's big. Robert, you have a question there, bud? Um, I just, yeah, I guess, let me see. What did I write down? I just, I'm, I'm always blown away at like watching or like listening to cool, like the, the ins and outs, because like, um, you know, so often than not, I think we're like right in the focal point or like the, it's like the, what do they call it? The detective's curse. When you stare so close at like the problem, you really have to like take a step back and it, it really is super interesting to see how everything goes. Um, but my question, it's, it's a little left field. I wrote it down a little bit ago. Um, but Wesley, where, when, when you do the canine detection at the airport, where would they generally hide it? Like, do they just put it in their suitcase or do they try to like hide it inside of something? Yeah, they're, they're using different things. So for example, mm. um, cargo. So it's really easy to send from one place, one country to another country, cargo, mm-hmm. on a, and nobody knows who, who, who you are. So cargo mm-hmm. is like an easy way to trafficking. So... Yeah, if you're looking about security on the airport, cargo screening is one of the things what uh, can I can do. Okay. The other thing is the other thing is really important is searching the luggage from the people mm-hmm. because they bring, yeah, they, they 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 use everything, but also the personal bags and on their body as well. And in some countries, um, you cannot search people because uh, yeah, if the culture. It's not, yeah, the dog cannot touch them. Sure. But I always say, and that's also interesting, you see that with many disciplines, if the dog gives an indication on their back, the person is also positive. So that mm-hmm. means if the dog gives an indication on one of the backs, we take that person out, we do an interview, and we're going to uh, screen them by hand or by uh, other uh, x-rays. Yeah. Uh, but nobody is searching for wildlife um yeah, wildlife trafficking. So uh, especially the dogs, because on the airport, the security guys are looking for explosives. The customs are looking for narcotics or money. Mm-hmm. And especially the countries where we are deploying, nobody is trained to to search for wildlife trafficking. And um, yeah, I'm now making uh, really uh, something what's really needed, an X-ray program that uh, people see, okay, this is a pangolin scale looking on an X-ray. 
in a mm-hmm. bag or a, or a cargo box. I'm now, as we're speaking, developing that because I'm before I was a canine operator. I was like an X-ray operator. So I got a database with so many wildlife samples that I say, hey, listen, our dogs make an indication and somebody's going to check it and they are trained to search for explosives on every mm-hmm. airport because every operational uh, security is the same, almost the same on every country. So I'm now making even like an X-ray program because I see like it's not there and nobody's looking for that. So, yeah, um, yeah. and especially if you if you deploy a dog on a 100% risk flight, yeah, they have really problems because, yeah, the dog is sniffing your back. Uh, and then it become really difficult to send something out by an international airport. Mm. Yeah, it's complex. It's uh, like Wesley was saying, it's, um, it's, it's so far and few between. And then you have lack of training and lack of, uh, I don't know if it's initiative, but they just don't, they're not focused in that realm. So you can miss a lot of things. So usually the things that are caught are like overtly obvious, like a full rhino horn or a sure. massive piece of ivory or like a dead pangolin wrapped up inside something. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate because there are, there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say lesser crimes, but lower volume going through at a steadier rate because there's less trained eyes and, or their focus may not be there because they're primarily worried about, bombs and explosives yes um, so yeah it's it that's and a e- even in in containers it's not one pangolin eh? the, it's yeah. full with pangolin it's like crazy if you, if crazy. you can imagine about how many pangolins there are like in that container and containers are really difficult especially in some countries so for example in europe or in america customs can say hey i want to open this in asia they cannot open it. I was like with 20 specialist uh, uh, wildlife trafficking team from the police, customs. And I said, let's open it. And they're looking at me. We cannot do it because the owner needs to be here. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, are you joking? Yeah, they say there's a security shield. And I said, listen, this security strip, we have that in the airport like so many. <laughs> I yeah. said, they, they cannot open. They say, no, only when a dog gives an indication, we can open it. And it's like crazy, crazy rules that make it so difficult, even for that uh, wildlife unit. They want to do it so good, but they cannot do it. They say, listen, if the dog is screened, if they give an indication, our law say, yes, we can open it then. Uh, and otherwise, the owner needs to be there. And I say, listen, the owner is somewhere in the world. he never be there. So it's like really a, a risk. And if you see how many... They go by, uh, even in the, in the Netherlands or Europe, they use international ports, yeah. international airports, by easy transporting. Um, yeah, it's crazy if you see how many pangolin skills we found here in the Netherlands. Oh, yeah. Cargo checks. It's like, I was like, whoa. <laughs> and they say, yes, we just, yeah, we're not looking for it. We see that. And then they think, what's this? So, yeah, of course, our customs agent is way more better trained than somebody in Africa and Asia, but yeah, it's really fascinating to see. And also like, yeah, it's about training awareness, even like a simple awareness training in, in those countries can make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only time, um, so comically for a long time, I, I would wear, I had a, a Polynesian fish hook necklace and it 
it as it aged, it started to look like ivory. Um, and it was just a piece of plastic. Um, and of all the times I wore it through all the countries, through all the custom checkpoints, the only place I got stopped and asked about it was in Kenya. And I actually thanked the customs officer for stopping and double checking. Cause he also didn't believe me, which was good. good. I, yeah. I want him to not believe me. I, I, that's what I want from somebody in that space. And he didn't know who I was, which is made it even better. Cause if he did, he probably would have been trying to be over the top. You know, let me, let me make this even more official. Try to think, you know, do this, make this really, you know, to the code. But he was, he stopped me, asked me, interviewed me there and then didn't believe me. And they did a, uh, they scanned it and I was like, perfect. And it, the sad side of that is, is that should have technically happened in multiple other places, uh, around the world where I was working while wearing it. And it didn't dawn on me until it happened when I was in Kenya. I was like, these guys should be asking me about this. And yeah. it's a, that was a basic, basic awareness thing. Super basic awareness thing. Like, are you aware that it could be as simple as a necklace piece or a, you know, a tiny little trinket type thing? Um, and that it's most likely ivory if it's this color and, and this kind of thing. But again, that's the basis of awareness and education and retraining. Even here in the US, US um, I do a lot of presentations for law enforcement of all sorts of different types. And I talk to them about what they look like, the common things that they might be in, um, where they're coming from, the common labeling, the common destinations, the common waypoints. And once they know that, then they're like, oh, okay, I got it. But before that, they're, it's, you know, it's fresh to them. They're like, oh, we didn't realize it could be in a shaved form if it's rhino horn. Like they're selling it in little baggies and it could look like sawdust. Or it might come in these, you know, round bracelets that look almost like a plastic if you don't look closely. You know, little things. Um, so that's a big category of GCF as well in the awareness and education side. It's not just the public, it's not just in situ, and it's not just colleges. It's huge realm of professional level training and education awareness. Um, and then using, you know, for example, like uh, our canines for demos or um, asking them if their canine can be, you know, cross-trained for certain things too. Or, hey, can you look for this at the same time? <laughs> Yeah. double down more than one thing with the same effort. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a big round. We're definitely, I would say we're still in the infancy of canines in the field of conservation, even though we are very well established as a whole around the world, more people need to be up to speed on what it takes and what it means and how to do it right and how to be more efficient with it. And it's definitely outside of our scope because that ranges into literally every airport and port. Um, but, you know, one piece at a time, one team at a time, one section, as many places as we can go. Um, and then making the mini documentaries uh, like the one that Mike Versteeg did on um, Thor going to Africa. Those little things help because um, you can retell the same story in a very easy to understand way and then it starts more conversations and sparks more work, yeah. more cause. <laughs> so, well, Wesley, did you have um, any other, I don't know, upcoming things that you wanted to talk about or share? I, I did see that you are going to, 
teach a class or you maybe you just taught a class? Uh, yeah, it was like for uh, a ranger federation like in Europe. Was um, I did some free uh, webinar, but it was amazing to see how many people around the world, uh, more than 70, uh, 24 uh, different countries. Uh, they show, yeah, they, uh, and even then, it was too much uh, for, the, for the browser online. So, um, yeah, I just did an online training. Uh, there's one moment at this time, there's like a wildlife trafficking team in South America. Um, we go, of course, to Indonesia, Bangladesh, Africa. So a lot of projects are yeah, in the hold. Um, and, I, and I'm really, um, yeah, what I say now that we make the X-ray training, that's something so special and so needed because, for example, if you want to deploy a dog, or starting the dogs, the dogs are the best detection system in the world. But what you say and what we discuss, you need so many things before you can, yeah, you place a dog somewhere. And now, um, yeah, with the X-ray training, I'm really motivated because, um, yeah, I see it's an easy way that people get trained and they get, yeah, there's every way X-rays on uh, on the airport, the sea, uh, and a, and a seaport. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm really uh motivated about that because um yeah what i say if you see yeah with with that it, yeah it's so easy to train airport security uh, people with that and uh with a manual about how wildlife species looks so yeah i'm uh, motivated about that as well because it's really needed that's awesome man and yeah. that's really cool that you had so many folks show up to your your uh, online seminar because yeah I definitely I, I had a couple people reach out to me in the last couple of weeks I was in the field and everything and um, just by chance people reached out they're like hey is there any online program or any program that you recommend and I definitely sent some folks your way because I was like I believe Wesley's going to be teaching an online setup here soon or is going to be doing a couple and I know people always want more of that so it's 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 cool when you offer that um, we should definitely talk about uh, doing like an online uh, education seminar and inviting some speakers to do it for like a virtual panel uh, sometime in the future. Cause I know I have been asked about it quite a bit. <laughs> like people are like, where can I learn more and what books? I'm like, it's not that easy to find that information yet. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> and of, of course you cannot train a dog like on online, but if you see even like with basics information, uh, yeah, people were really helped it and they say, whoa, yeah, yeah, yeah. I never think about this, but I will try. And then they try and they say, Wes, it works. And mm. the dogs is more motivated. So even that, yeah, yeah. And uh, especially if you see how many questions I get after that, it's like, uh, yeah, I'm really uh, fascinated by that as well. And uh, yeah, I'm more than happy to help, of course, if I have the time. Yeah, that's a, actually... I was going to say probably the biggest value is when people actually get to ask you questions uh, at the end because then they're going to be taking serious notes about, hey, I have this behavior issue or my dog's doing this or I want my dog to do this or I want to get to this step, but I'm stuck between these steps. And um, instead, you take the guesswork out, guesswork out of it with your experience and your path of teaching and everything. So it's really cool. Um Robert, did you have any questions before we start to wrap this one up? No, I think I, I think I've asked everything that I did, or whether that or you guys answered them already. But no, I think uh, I think I'm all good. Epic. Well, Wesley, from my side, thank you for all of your time and effort joining us on the call. Um, 
all of your hard work working in the field uh, as one of our instructors and, of course, your partnership and all of our efforts to raise and train canines and get them into teams that need them and that can utilize them. Um, it's an invaluable resource, and I'm very excited that, uh, you know, we have a lot more time on our hands in the future to apply more and more as we continue on uh, helping the conservation industry. Yeah. yeah, I'm more than happy, and it's an honor to work with you guys. So, um, yeah, I'm. Um, thank you for this, for your your time as well. And um, I think uh, we yeah we can share this as well because this podcast is also interesting about yeah how you yeah really good information about uh, not it's not only the dogs it's so many things which you need to think about before you're starting it and mm -hmm. uh, i think it's a really good information for people that want to start a dog unit as well so yeah a compliment uh, for your work and everything what you've done and um, yeah and hope you see you in real life in the field uh, <laughs> next year yeah yes. I, I agree man <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> might be on the uh uh, on that pink fairy armadillo project <laughs> or some aspect of that, or maybe back in pangolins and rhino horns. So we'll see. There's a lot of, I think the, the one thing that's common for both Wesley and I is we're both pulled in so many different directions. Uh, aligning our schedules can be nearly impossible sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with that, everybody, thank you for joining us on another episode of coffee and conservation. If you haven't done so already, Find us on Instagram at coffee underscore and underscore conservation. Find us on Spotify and on Google uh, Podcasts. Hit subscribe, like, or rate. Uh, we appreciate it. If you're looking to get involved in the field of canines and or conservation, uh, you're more than welcome to go to our website. If you'd like to support, same site, same place, you're going to go down to donate canines if you're looking to volunteer you go to the volunteer tab on our website and check out the options there um, there's a lot of ways to get involved and we definitely need help in the field from fundraising to awareness to um, more people spreading the right information about what is actually needed in the field uh, so thank you all for tuning in and we'll catch you guys on the next episode of coffee and conservation